0: Hello, and welcome to Cannabis for the Rest of Us. You have questions, I have questions, and we are exploring this community together. I'm your host, Philip Rebentish, Chief Storyteller of Got a Story Media. This episode is possible thanks to our sponsor, Three Wells, a company that is demystifying the new world of marijuana for grown-ups. Find them online at threewells.co. Be well. Live well. Do well. My guest today is Avis Babullion the CEO of Siva Enterprises, a full-service cannabis business development and solutions firm that provides turnkey management, venture opportunities, product and brand development, and licensing to entrepreneurs across the U.S. He is also president of the Los Angeles Cannabis Task Force, an appointed member of California State's Advisory Committee advising the three bureaus on cannabis regulations, and was the Education Chair for Cannabis Legal Accounting and Business. The bottom line, is that if you want answers about the cannabis business, Avis is your guide. Avis, thank you so much for taking time to appear on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Tell me how Siva got started. Uh, Did you just wake up one morning and decide you wanted to get into a highly regulated business that's going to cause you to lose sleep?
1: No, no idea we would even be at this point. Um, The way we got started was really just... Combination of a couple of different things, Uh, started doing some homework on the industry back in 06, uh, exploring the opportunities that fed into 2007. And then I'm the guy that never smoked in high school or any of that stuff, so I needed to learn how, what makes the plant tick, what makes it do what it does. So put up a couple of lights, start off with four lights in the garage. One thing led to another, and expanded out the cultivation operations, got into retail, got into manufacturing, then got into consulting, And being at the combination of being at the right place at the right time and opportunity striking got linked up with the group in Massachusetts right around end of 2012 when they were looking at going through their bill and doing their stuff. So ended up working with them through 2013 and in 2014, we ended up with the high score in Massachusetts and we're the only group that got the maximum three out of three licenses. They only gave out 20. So from there, um, I actually relocated Mass, came back to California and incorporated the consulting company, formalized it, and turned it into Bull Bullion Consulting Group. Picked up a Nevada group, submitted that application, and then right after, went into Illinois' process, and one thing led to another. Brought all back full circle in 2015. By then, we were one of the most successful state licensing consultants um, in the industry. And then we saw an opportunity There was a little bit of a slowdown in state licensing with Hawaii, and then uh, Florida didn't pass Amendment 2. So use used that opportunity to rebrand the company and start the project that we're hopefully closing out over the next two, three months. And that's about a three-year project. So we started renaming the company, rebranding the company to SEVA Enterprises and its family of companies, and here we are, no sleep and pushing through every day. So it sounds like your growth was the proverbial hockey stick. Yes and no. It was the hockey stick, but it was really more of a hockey stick in the sense of opportunity more so than revenues and stuff like that. We were able to, because we were fortunate enough to have a front, line, uh, front row seat, um, to, the development of all these new markets, the implementation of all these new markets, what works, what doesn't work, different business concepts, and just being able to see the market trend where the industry is evolving to, we were always able to stay one, two steps ahead of it and plant the seeds out for a year out, two years out, three years out. So we continue to do what we do, what's made us successful. As we come up on these milestones, the seeds that we had planted are germinating, and now we're uh, the company's going through an evolution. So we've gone through a hell of a lot of them. <laughs> um,
0: so my approach to the cannabis community is that you have to be somewhat of an
1: activist. Do you share that mindset? Yes and no. It depends on the approach. See, it kind of also goes into the business opportunity in cannabis. A lot of people look at it as retail, manufacturing, cultivation. They don't really see the other opportunities, and I'm not talking about ancillary opportunities. Again, direct plant touching. But now it's really more about the business concept and what licenses you need to be able to execute on that model. So when we take it back to activism, um, it certainly helps. It would be great if everybody had some level of activism. And activism isn't necessarily Hey, um, cannabis should be legal. Hey, I've been growing up for 30, 40 years. And that's not all cannabis activism is about. When you look at politics, you look at the state of politics in this country. Um, one of the topics that really has bipartisan support across, uh, across the board is cannabis. So now if you happen to be in a position where cannabis is your platform, there are a lot of opportunities for activism to be introduced, whether it's to cause social change, um, women movement uh native americans just across the board so it's really taking the opportunity you have with cannabis and what you do with cannabis see it's the same as disruptive industries right you'd look at cannabis everyone wants to talk about the medical side of it the nutraceutical side of it um a close reference is the textile industry but then when you look at cannabis and hemp uh, when we lump them together it's one of those things that it disrupts multiple a lot of different industries across the board from your textile farm to your construction the other day last week there was a conference in la and there was a bmw i8 apparently a big well i think it was like 60 70 80 percent of that bmw i8 was made with him. so when you think about it in those terms it's not just any one industry this industry is spawning different industries, but it's also causing other industries to reevaluate the the way they were doing things. And one of the most uh, direct ones would probably be alcohol distribution. So alcohol, you've had it on the books since the, what, 30s, 40s, uh, all this time, and they've just had their way of doing it. That's never changed. That's never evolved to catch up with the technology and all that. So now, a couple of years ago, California adopted a three-tiered liquor distribution model that obviously morphed into the vertical model that we have today, but it, California's regulatory model started off as an independent third-party distributor model. And it was drawing a lot of um, uh, ideas and parallels from the alcohol industry. As the cannabis industry, as that model started evolving, it didn't take long to figure out what the shortcomings of the alcohol model were. And I think a lot of that also led to the vertical model that we have today. So now you've got legacy industries like alcohol that are going to be drawing from cannabis and what works in cannabis because at the end of the day, not that it's the same product, not that it's a commodity, but the, um, the supply chain, for the most part, it kind of functions the same way.
0: So speaking of that business model, uh, Siva provides a wide variety of consulting services for cannabis businesses. Was it important to be more horizontal or in- instead of just staying in one lane?
1: I think it goes back to being able to evolve with market trends and industry development and growth. See, where we started, Start off on the cultivation side. It had nothing to do with consulting. And then as you get good at that, you have a lot of people that are asking for advice and you're helping people out. And then back then, you didn't really have a lot of opportunities to interact with other industry uh, operators on a very personal level, very in-depth level. So you used every opportunity you could. And so it's being able to morph and evolve and see opportunities. When we started, when I started the company as a Blue Bullion Consulting Group, it really was to be considered a consulting firm, more so than a consultant or a consulting company or a cannabis company. It was to be the legitimate firm that just happens to specialize in cannabis. As we went through with the state licensing, see state licensing and licensing in general for cannabis, it's not filling out an application. It's taking the entire company, deconstructing it, bringing it down to the level and rebuilding it, architecting the company, everything from your... Management team to your executives to your boots on the ground to your financial model to your financial strategy your literally everything that it takes to be a successful company. The only thing you're missing is really your license. So by the time you submit your application, you have a blueprint to your entire organization how it's built, how it's going to run, how it's going to function, who's going to push it forward. So once that happened, then these uh, license holders went into the implementation stage. So it's like okay, great, you won your provisional approval. Now whatever's in your application, go implement it. So when you see w- all these things happening. And then, for instance, New York, right? New York was a very, very heavy medical market. Massachusetts was still a nonprofit model over there. Nevada was probably one of the better states that did it a little bit better than most in that they embraced it. It's like, look, it's cannabis. We're going to do it. So we're going to do it all the way. And they created four tiers out of it. So now when you're on the licensing side, that puts you in a position where in these highly regulated markets, they have the benefit of not having an existing industry. So the state comes out with their state regulations, puts it out there, made the best man win. So that forces you, that actually raises the cost of entry uh, and the barrier of entry in all these markets. So now you're dealing with really high net worth investors. You're dealing with finance people. You're dealing with high level operational people, executives that you read about really in newspapers and Forbes lists and stuff like that. Athletes. So, athletes. So you're being drawn into their world as much as you're drawing them into your world. And it all starts off with education. So as you're sitting down, you're educating them on cannabis. And they're educating you on their background. And the most successful people in this space aren't the people that go out and learn how to grow or learn how to be a dispensary operator. It's the people that take what they do, what they've learned throughout their life, professional and personal, and simply apply it to this industry. If you go into it with that kind of a mindset, it's not different compared to any anything else. So now when you're on the licensing side, going back to your question on is was it intended to be vertical it was really more about satisfying a need so if we're going in there we're handling your application uh soup to nuts and now you're into the implementation stage well once you do this enough times and enough years now you have a rolodex and every group's looking for a, a investor every investor is looking for an opportunity so if you're going through and you're blending these groups together you're building up these companies and you're finding opportunities for these companies you become that much more in demand. So what starts off as licensing, then ends up being, okay, well, we need compliance help. Well, who would better help you on your compliance side than the guy that basically broke down all the state regulations for you, built <laughs> right? your entire right? company and <laughs> gave you your launch. So that feeds into compliance work. Then that feeds into general oversight. Um, these guys are qualified, so they run it, but they need somebody to tell them where the landmines are. So you're there, you're working hand in hand with them. Again, you're being drawn and sucked into their world as much as you're drawing them and sucking them into your world. After enough years and you're satisfying all these needs, you're not doing anything that you're already not doing. Now, there's just an opportunity to be able to monetize it. So that's what kind of starts off as consulting and licensing, then feeds into management. And the management feeds into branding and brand development because now we're at a point where you don't necessarily need a license to have a brand. So if we're taking care of the heavy lift for you and we're handling your production, we're handling your distribution, we're handling all that stuff, well, you go your brand, go worry about building your brand, go worry about being the CEO of your brand, let the guy that knows compliance handle the compliance piece. So now when we come back to California, where the plan was to uh, plant the operational flag uh, three years ago, that morphed and modeled into, hey, we're already providing all these services to all these clients, from their compliance, to their licensing, to their management, why shouldn't manufacturing be treated as a service? Why shouldn't distribution be treated as a service? And if we have the market reach, if we have the national reach, if every single market practically, we know our way around, we know the players, they know us, we know the sensitivity of all the different markets, well, we can get you into all these markets. We've got plans, and all. we've got the relationships. So now we've morphed into more of a platform than a manufacturing company or a cultivation company or a consulting company or a licensing company. But again, because of the positioning we have, there's a big opportunity to really give back to those that don't have that opportunity. So now it's like, okay, well, we don't want our own company or our brand. We want to provide the opportunity for everybody else because business, good ideas and stuff, don't see color, don't see disability, don't see gender. We do. So if we can level the playing field and allow or provide that opportunity for the smaller guy to compete with the bigger guy, the Canadian guy and all these... It just makes what we do that much more, more valuable, and that's what keeps you going every day. So is
0: there a typical client that comes to Siva Enterprises or does it really you know, have a, a wide range of, of businesses or people that are coming to seek your consultation services?
1: It's probably everybody on the spectrum. Uh, <laughs> I mean, different groups are qualified for different things in different markets and different states, but generally we've got everybody from a U.S. congressman, your state senator to your ridiculously a successful business person down to your hobby grower, your day-to-day average operator. It's not based on who can write a check. It's who values the opportunity. If you're going to spend half an hour talking, if you're going to spend 10 minutes talking, um, is receptive on the other side? Is there value being created on the other side? So as far as typical, not really. Um, I mean, we probably do more pro bono work than most firms um, out there. And it's really about being able to actually deliver a service for what you charge them. And if you can't deliver that service or if they're not in a position to capitalize on that service, just because they write the check, you don't necessarily want to take their money. So is there some commonality in the clients that are
0: coming to you for things that they don't know but they should know?
1: Yes. Um, In fact, a lot. So, And it also goes back to changing the mindset that, A year, two years ago, when the average client was coming in, they were coming in saying, I want to be a dispensary. I want to be a grower. I want to be a manufacturer. Your options were pretty limited on what you could do with the license and be a business. Today, it's very different. Today, when they come in, obviously, they still come in. I want to be a dispensary. The first question is why? Tell me about yourself. Tell me about what you've done. Tell me about, forget about licenses. Forget about any restriction. Fast forward two years from now. Fast forward five years from now. What have you done? What do you have? Let's take that back it up to today, now we'll put together the game plan. Once you know what you want to do, then it's a function of, okay, what licenses do I need to authorize these activities? See, people get too caught up in owning a license and it kind of goes back to, um, so I used to do business equipment lease financing for a very short while, and one of the main underlining themes behind that industry was you're paying for the use, not the ownership. So now, if you look about it, look at it like that. In California, you got all these licenses. If the average cost of an application to go through the whole process, real estate and all, is anywhere from two to four, five hundred thousand, then you got anywhere from five hundred thousand to a couple million to go into that project. Well, you're basically paying for the ownership of the license. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be just another grower? Are you going to be just another producer of oil, or are you a successful brand you took? a fraction of that money built out a brand now you're going out you're paying for the use of the license and it's not costing you millions so it sounds
0: to me like uh, maybe they're lacking a strategic vision when they first because they're looking at that first step what do we need to do to get this going and not thinking five steps down the road
1: No, I think a lot of it is getting caught up in the fact that they want to capitalize on the cannabis industry. They want to get into the cannabis industry, whatever anybody's intentions are for the industry, and not understanding enough about the industry and the options that are available to them. So when they want to go in, especially with the hype that's created around cannabis and everything, the majority of the people that walk in through the door think that if they don't do something today, they're out of this. They they've missed their chance. This thing is just starting. This is, I mean. Look, all the people that were rushing for a license a year ago, where are they today? Still waiting for a license. Right. The right. people that got into this a month ago, wanted to chase a license. They're no further behind or further along than the guy that was at this a year, two years ago. So it really comes down to exposing yourself to the market, the industry, learning the industry understanding the ecosystem the supply chain of the industry if you want to be a retailer it's not enough for you to just understand retail you got to understand what keeps the grower up at night what keeps the manufacturer up at night how distribution functions and works if you can understand the ecosystem and the supply chain and understand where you live in that ecosystem that's what's going to make you successful but besides successful that's what's going to allow you to see other opportunities where before you wouldn't so in addition to appearing on this
0: wildly popular podcast You've done a fair amount of media. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, when the press comes to you or contacts you, what kind of questions are they asking you?
1: All over. I mean, we get policy questions, operational questions, finance questions. Um, uh, put your magic wizard hat on and guess <laughs> what's going to happen five years without questions. Right. But it really comes down to the topic. But besides the topic, what we try to do... Is Besides responding to their question on whatever their question and topic is, we try to give them some background information because not everything is as straightforward as you think, especially in cannabis. So you got to look at secondhand and thirdhand consequences. You have to look at uh, why certain things are the way they are, and it might not have to do with the line of questioning. That they're seeking, it might have to do some, with something completely random that they haven't even picked up on. So, whenever we have an opportunity to speak with media and newspapers and stuff like that, it really is about education. So, if they ask us a 280 question or if they ask us a finance question, it's like, okay, well, the answer to your question is this, but in what context? change the context, change the entire response to the question, change the perspective, change the uh, response to the question. So once you respond to it, it's like, well, let me also explain to you some of the other things that you might not be taking into consideration. And then a five-minute call for one question and one comment turns into a half an hour discussion about that general area, but they're becoming that much more knowledgeable. So the next time a topic comes up, a story comes up, they're not just looking at it as an A and B situation. They're like, okay, why are we here? Why is the situation happening? We're looking at it from finance. What about if we take a security approach to it? So when it
0: comes to consumers, do you think that that kind of press coverage and, um, in terms of trying to educate people through the press, do you think that that can
1: benefit consumers? Absolutely. Um, it's all about education. People are afraid of what they don't know, what they don't understand. The more education you give them, the uh, more comfortable they're going to feel about the process. It's uh, kind of like all these dry cities, right? Dry city, everyone's completely against it. No, we don't want it in our backyard. Once you start educating them, nobody want, everybody wants a voice. So start educating them. Start educating them, educating them, educating them. And the more you can educate them on different topics, it makes life that much easier. And look, we like to talk about cannabis, how no one's ever died from cannabis. There's. It's got all these medicinal uh, effects and benefits of uh, that, uh, that are derived from cannabis. But it would also be naive to think that there isn't anything, what's, for lack of better words, bad about it. And it right. might not be. But, again, it comes down to education. It comes down to research. Until we actually do that, we don't know what the consequence Obviously, it's more good than the bad. The majority is good. But you also got to understand it. And to ignore it, it's just service So
0: Well, and hopefully – The floodgates are opening in terms of more medical research Mm -hmm. in this country. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that develops over time. So we first met at an event here in your office in Glendale, California. A city councilman from Glendale spoke at that event. And I'm curious, what is the political environment in terms of supporting or not supporting cannabis in Glendale?
1: So Glendale's pretty conservative in general. Um, I think when you look at the polling, it was polling at, well, based on the votes, it was about 50. It was in the mid 50s. for pro cannabis then what happened was in 2017 last year january city of glendale had a town hall uh to take some feedback and figure out what's going on then they set up a poll online and then there have been a couple of i don't want to call false starts because it was never even an intention to start but they were exploring it they're still sort of exploring it but as of right now it's a dry city um it is a little on the conservative side when they do open up it's probably probably going to be a slower rollout and a smaller industry to start off with and every city's got its own character uh, every city's got its own industry that they represent and i think for as far as glendale is concerned but really every city um independently it's really up to them to find their voice in the industry what their um uh, uh, what fits their model, not every city. See, you got a lot of cities jumping on the cannabis uh, wagon, which is really great, mm-hmm. but they're all putting themselves out there as the Silicon Valley of weed. We're gonna license all these. it's like, that's great, but California only needs so much cannabis. When you look at taxes, see, initially two, three years ago, when a lot of uh, groups were lobbying different councils, they're lobbying them along the lines of, look, it's cannabis, uh, set your taxes at 10%, set your taxes at 20%, people are paid. Yeah, they'll pay when they don't have any choices. When they have some choices, they're not gonna pay that. If you, same thing with real estate, are they gonna pay you four or five dollars a square foot to rent your building today? Probably, will they pay it a year from now when they have an option? Probably not. So if you're a city, if you're looking at putting it out there and saying we're gonna be the Silicon Valley of weed, well you better start investing in some infrastructure. You better start looking at this five years out, 10 years out, not how much money can I make off the industry over the next year, two years, get out of my deficit and I'm the Silicon Valley of weed. So just like you're gonna have businesses fail, You're probably going to see a lot of cities fail where they do invest in the infrastructure, but it's just not enough. So the city of Los Angeles is right next door.
0: Mm -hmm. Does their um, uh, Department of Cannabis Regulation, do those decisions affect some of your clients that might be in other parts of the state? I mean, I know they're out of jurisdiction, but that market, the city of Los Angeles by itself, is an enormous market. Mm -hmm. So do those decisions affect... Some of your other clients that might not even be in the city of Los Angeles?
1: Absolutely, and for the sole reason uh, being the size of L.A. See, you look at L.A., you have the county of L.A., which Glendale is an an incorporated city within L.A. County. So you have the county, you have its independent cities, incorporated cities, you have the unincorporated L.A., then you also have the city of L.A. And L.A., again, just for the fact that it's L.A., I mean, you look at population-wise, market size, It's probably bigger than the state of Colorado as a market for no other reason than population in a much smaller footprint, Uh, at least I think so. But anything that happens in L.A. has a national ripple effect. And I think L.A. doing something is kind of in line with any given state doing something. So we're trying to control this or regulate this as a city where most states do it at a state level. A lot of it is really collaboration. It's changing, exchanging stories. Hey, what we'll worked for you in this situation? Hey, what about you take this approach? Or have you given thought to this type of an approach? Because the cannabis industry, it's not just activism. It's not business. It's not finance. It's not politics. It's everything. So you have to take... Um, you have to provide that voice that opportunity for all the different stakeholders to contribute that's the only way this is gonna this is gonna work i'm on the state advisory board there are a lot of uh, decisions i make there are a lot of arguments i make that as a company it's probably against my better interest as a private company but it is for the greater good it is for the betterment of the industry it's for good public policy so um it's it's striking right that balance but yeah, you try to get out there and interact as much as you possibly can. This is the industry that we're going to be living in. Do
0: you find that people in the industry, even higher-up executives, are actual users of, of cannabis or hemp-based CBD? I mean, are they using the product that we're all involved in?
1: If they're not, they're com- uh, com- uh, converts. They convert. So a lot of them have touched it. A lot of them have tried it. The ones that don't, you can't participate in this industry at that level and not even try something. Right. And CBD is one that. I was almost all of them try and it doesn't take much or too many uses for them to really be stuck on it. So one of the things that's been really, it's been really great to see is a lot of the business people, right? Quote unquote business people, the high level finance people that get into the space where a lot of the industry is looking at them like, oh, a big, bad business. Believe it or not, a lot of these big business guys, they have more intentions that are better classified as great intentions. Uh, well intentioned compared to a lot of industry folks so and the reason is because a lot of these guys at that level they've already made the money they need Uh, once you get to a certain point in business it really becomes about the give back aspect of it and for them a lot of them don't even look at canvas opportunities where it's strictly about dollars and cents hey dollar in X amount out the first question is what's my uh, double bottom line what's my triple bottom line where's the change where's the impact so And that's a really interesting dynamic shift compared to what the optics and what the general narrative reads. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they've already been there. They've already done that. They've already made the money. They don't necessarily need more money. So for them, it's either a legacy play or they use it as an opportunity to dominate another industry, a personal goal. But at that level, almost always, you always have that underlying social factor, underlying give back component to almost all their investments. See, this is why I
0: wanted to come in and talk to you, because I didn't know that. Do you think that's, I mean, I'm still learning about this industry, which is one of the reasons why I launched this podcast to begin Mm -hmm. with, because I wanted to learn more about the people in it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's pretty common knowledge, that there is an altruistic vision with some of the, the, at the executive level within this community?
1: I don't think uh, it's common knowledge. In fact, I think it's one of the areas that really needs to be highlighted, because again, they're all looking at it as um, Mr. Moneybags is coming in to take our money. (laughs) Right, right. Look, you got a lot of that out there. A hell of a lot out there. And the thing about give back is, unless you're making the money, it's kind of difficult to give it back. So it's also striking that balance. But at that level, look, growing a business is not easy. Taking a startup, growing it big is not easy. Just even running a mom and pop, it's not easy. But if you want to get to the next level up and you want to get to the next level up and go to the next level even higher than that, expect some pains. But when you go through those pains, you become that much stronger, you become that much smarter, you become that much wiser, and you become that much more tolerant. So it's all about what you see. It's Everything's about life experiences. It's what you make of it. Look, when you're an investor and you're looking at the campus space, you know there's money in there. You know the opportunity. You're hoping to see more opportunity, but you, for the most part, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. The industry person has to get out of the mindset that this is cannabis, it's unique, um, it's, not, it's not compared to any other market. The business guy's asking questions that have nothing to do with cannabis, it's taking it to a completely different level. It's trying to understand his mindset, it's trying to understand how he comes uh, to form the decisions that he makes, his decision making process. And it's trying to not necessarily change that, but trying to influence that by providing the tools. Hey, have you thought about this or have you thought about that approach? If you can take the grower that normally wouldn't even have an opportunity. um, Right now, a lot of uh, not just growers, but just industry folks. If you're in your mid 20s and you're living it as a lifestyle, you got thousands of cash in your pocket and money's coming, money's easy, money's going. That's one mindset. So now when you have a chance to, uh, to interact with somebody that's made hundreds of millions in their life, they've done something right in life. Um, unless you happen to run across the guy that just screwed his way up there, but a lot of them have <laughs> <Right>. built it. <laughs> we'll stick to the altruistic. Answer. Yeah. So that those guys like, well, that's great. Have you thought about your future? Have you thought about three years? Have you thought about what happens when everybody's the best grower in the world and your product is no different than anybody else's in the world? What are you going to do next? Um, don't trip over a dollar or pick up a dime. So... It's what you, any relationship, is what you get out of it.
0: How can people find you online?
1: www.sivallc.com. That's S I V A L L C.com.
0: Well, Avis, thank you so much for taking time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for, for having us, and thank you. Thank
0: you for listening to Cannabis for the Rest of Us. Please subscribe and help us grow. Check out our show notes for more information about this podcast, Gotta Story Media. And our sponsor, Three Wells. You can find us at gotastory.com. That's G O T T A S T O R Y.com.